This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 6th Congressional District has stood by Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman, but changing demographics and a relatively unpopular president once again makes the seat a target for Democrats who want to take over the U.S. House. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is here to break down the race and what's at stake. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Why don't you describe Colorado's sixth? It's really the only competitive House race in Colorado this time. That's right, Ryan. The 6th Congressional District spans the eastern part of the Denver metro area, and it includes Aurora, which is the state's third largest city. It's younger and more diverse than the state as a whole. It has more African and Asian immigrants. And what's interesting is that in 2016, Hillary Clinton won in the district by nine points over President Donald Trump. But Kaufman won by eight points. So that means a lot of voters split their tickets. College student Shubeshka Shreshta from Aurora is she's one of those split ticket voters. Her family immigrated from Nepal and she's unaffiliated. And she said she actually backed Bernie Sanders. And then when Clinton was the nominee, she voted for Clinton for president. She also backed Kaufman. And she said she likes Kaufman's stance on policies like supporting high tech visas for immigrants. He's always been visible in the community. So he's always trying to... uh, help the community as best as his ability can, and he can. Representative Kaufman says he didn't vote for Trump, and he's pushed back against the president most strongly on immigration, opposing the family separation policy at the Mexican border and backing a version of DACA. And then earlier this year, he passed a House resolution aimed at protecting human rights in Ethiopia. So keeping these voters will be critical for Kaufman if he plans to win the seat and beat first-time candidate Democratic Attorney Jason Crow. He's a former Army Ranger and a combat veteran. That makes two veterans in this race. Are the dynamics of the race in District 6 different this election compared to previous ones, Benta? Kaufman weathered comparisons to Trump in 2016, but some people feel it's different now because Trump is actually the sitting president. And that's the main line of attacks Democrats are going to be using. And they already are saying he's too closely tied to President Trump, votes with what Trump wants. Here's Morgan Carroll. She's the Democratic State Party chair. She also ran against Kaufman in 2016, lost pretty handily to him. And she thinks he gets too much credit for being a moderate. Now he has a pattern where he'll introduce a bill, he'll put a press release out, get good press for it, and never pursue it again. The Democratic challenger, Jason Crow, plans to focus his campaign on local issues such as affordable housing, health care, guns, environmental policy. But he's also pledging to provide a check on the president. That's a big part of the message, the idea that the country can't afford to have a Republican-controlled Congress right now. And so uh, another thing that's different, this is the first time Kaufman's run against a veteran since the seat was redrawn in 2012 to become competitive. So the most recent figures from the Secretary of State's office show that Democrats and unaffiliated voters both now outpace Republicans. So that's a big difference. What's the biggest challenge for the Democrats in this race? Jason Crow will need to focus on raising his name recognition, letting voters know who he really is, especially if he's going to appeal to those unaffiliated voters and split ticket voters. A lot of Democrats see and hope that this race will be a referendum on the president, and they feel it's more about voting against the GOP, maybe more than anything else. Also, Kaufman's popular, especially with these immigrant communities. His opponents agree he's he's a hard worker. He's visible. 
And there's critiques that Crow is just this cookie cutter candidate and out of touch with the district. The other issue is turnout. Democrats fear that the so-called blue wave maybe is overly optimistic and won't materialize and their voters won't turn out in the way they need them to. So that's going to be hard to know. They could be underestimating that, too. Yeah, and that's what we will be watching on election night for sure. Millions of dollars were spent on this race in 2016. Uh, How much can we expect this cycle? A lot. The nonpartisan group Open Secrets tracks campaign figures on on campaign races and says both campaigns have raised a little over $2 million so far. And spending records are expected to be to break the amount spent in 2016. It just shows how critical both sides see this seat. So there's going to be a lot of soft money in the race, tons of TV ads. I was just grabbing lunch the other day. I was picking up my order. I saw four TV ads for CD6, pro and con in a very short time period. Uh So it's pretty common. It's only going to increase as we get closer to November. On Monday, the Environmental Defense Fund announced $1 million in radio, TV, and digital ads in four targeted house races in the nation. This is one of them, trying to unseat Kaufman. This seat is among the nearly two dozen districts in the nation with a Republican congressman representing a district won by Hillary Clinton in the last presidential election. So that's the number of seats Democrats need to win to take control of the House. So uh, this is kind of seen as the lower hanging fruit that they really need to win. Some fascinating math there. And as you say, this race for Colorado's 6th Congressional District is getting national attention. I wonder what polling reveals. The New York Times recently polled voters in CD6, and Jason Crow led the poll by 11 percentage points. It's worth noting this is just one poll, so it's difficult difficult to know how much weight to place on it, but it was based on 500 interviews. 48% of respondents didn't have an opinion about Crow, either favorable or unfavorable. Kaufman had a higher unfavorable rating than Crow. And entities like the Cook Political Report say the race is a toss-up. A few other polls have put Crow slightly edging out Kaufman, but it's a tough seat. People didn't expect Kaufman to win last time. So it's going to be tough to predict. Benda, thanks for being with us. And I haven't had a chance to say to you on air, welcome to Colorado Public Radio. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here. Benta Brooklyn is CPR's new public affairs reporter. The Affordable Care Act has led to more African-Americans getting health insurance, according to a new report. It finds coverage has now reached parity across racial groups. CPR's Mike Lamp talks with our health reporter, John Daly, who says despite the findings, there are still big barriers to overcome. So what does this new report show? We know that the Affordable Care Act cut the state's uninsured rate in half, This new report from the Colorado Health Institute shows uninsured figures for black and African-Americans mirror that, dropping from just over 16 percent before the ACA to 6.5 percent after. And just tracking these numbers for this population is a kind of new ground, yes? Absolutely. Deidre Johnson is CEO and executive director of the Center for African-American Health in Denver. You measure what's important. And this is a wonderful way of saying, you know what, this community is as important as the other slices of our community. And this is a kind of a great baseline. Black and African-American Coloradans make up 4.5% of the state's population, 
That small number prevented detailed analysis before now, but the Colorado Health Institute weighted and aggregated data so it could look at changes pre- and post-ACA. So what is responsible for these gains in health insurance for this population? And in a word, Medicaid, about 80% of Coloradans who gained coverage because of Obamacare did that through Medicaid expansion. CHI policy analyst Karam Ahmad says the expansion let more low-income Coloradans qualify. We see that a lot of the gains that were among the Black and African American population in Colorado in health coverage are because of public health insurance and as a direct result, mostly because of Medicaid expansion. Republican leaders in Congress have talked about Medicaid cuts, but so far that hasn't happened. Now, it's very common that there are big disparities in access to health care based on race. Did this report find that is true in Colorado? Yeah, it did. The report found black and African-American Coloradans are less likely to see doctors and specialists and much more likely to visit an emergency room for a non-emergency Community health advocate Deidre Johnson says one key factor is transportation. She says blacks in the state are about half as likely to own a car as whites. So if you're working and you're relying on public transportation and you may be working at a job where you can't take off, then suddenly, yes, I have coverage, but I can't get to my primary care, but I can make it to the emergency room after hours. What did the report say specifically about transportation? Well, it found that 10% of blacks say transportation is a reason they can't get care. That's triple the number for whites. Bottom line, just because you have health insurance, you still need to have a way to get to a doctor. Right. So what is next? Uh, Now that this report is out there, how will it be used? The Center for African American Health is aiming to pull 3,000 people, and the group's Deidre Johnson says this information will be used to help bridge these persistent health gaps. There's so much good work that can be done to connect, find out what people really need to remove barriers and then remove those barriers so we can each really embrace the responsibility for keeping ourselves as healthy as possible. One last item I'd like to mention is about cost. The report found cost is still a barrier to seeing a doctor and to getting a prescription for blacks and African-Americans in Colorado. But the situation has improved since the Affordable Care Act went into effect. Okay, thanks a lot, John. You bet. CPR's Mike Lamp and health reporter John Daly talking about a new report from the Colorado Health Institute about access to care for African-Americans in this state. There was an emerging phenomenon that 30 years ago people were trying to get a handle on, climate change. Just recently, the New York Times ran a story about this pivotal moment in history, full of intrigue and backroom deals. The article meshed scientists, big business, and a United States senator from Colorado, Democrat Tim Wirth. A key figure in this puzzle, Senator Wirth, is on the phone with us from his home in Crested Butte, and welcome to the program. Nice to be with you, Ryan. Thank you. This summer's piece in the Times is called Losing Earth, the Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change, written by Nathaniel Rich. And it mentions a scientist, Jim Hansen, who testified at a hearing you chaired in 1988. I think it's fascinating that 30 years later, his granddaughter is part of a group of young adults now suing the federal government over inaction on this issue. I wonder how frustrating that is for you, that we're sort of three generations into this. Well, of course it's frustrating that we haven't made uh, progress as rapidly as we could have. 
But we have made significant progress, and I think that uh, Nathaniel Rich's New York Times column would act as if the world ended in uh, 1998, whereas, in fact, for the last 30 years, there have been a tremendous number of developments. Um, so having said that, we can go on and talk about that. Jim Hansen himself is very frustrated that Jim Hansen was the lead scientist probably in the world, and uh, we convinced him to testify in 1988. And it was a real blockbuster of a hearing that really changed the, the uh, pathways of thinking about climate change. It moved out of the scientific journals uh, into the front of the front page of newspapers, and it became a major public policy political issue as well as a scientific issue. So Hansen was pivotal. Uh, now we have to talk about what's happened since. What do you think made that hearing so pivotal, such a blockbuster, as you say? Well, it was, it was that way because the um, the Bush administration had been sort of denying, tiptoeing around the fact that there was no such thing. The industry kept saying it was all a natural phenomenon. And uh, nobody from the major science person from the federal government had come out and said that climate change was, in fact, uh, something we could see man's fingerprint, I think, was the word that Hansom used. Uh, that had been in the scientific literature as a possibility, but Hansom coming out Plus, it was a terribly hot summer in 1988, and uh, that made a huge difference. And there was a great drought across the Middle West. So the conditions in the country for listening uh, to what was happening and why it was happening uh, happened to feed right into Hansen's, you know, quite remarkable statement. So it was after he was there, you know, it was on the cover of, you know, many, many magazines, you know, including, as I remember, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, you know, about... <laughs> climate change. I mean, that sort of showed you that you, you hit the, you know, you hit the uh, mainstream media. But a lot of sign, I'm mean, important to say, it really was for the first time mainstream and it has been ever since. A small, so, um, just a small question, Senator. What what term was used back then? Did, did climate change, uh, was that the term of art at the time? Were you saying global warming? And Well, how, it was both. You know, uh -huh. it was uh, the climate was changing and that was leading to global warming. And uh, the greenhouse effect was another, Hansen explained the greenhouse effect, what happens when carbon gets into the atmosphere too, too uh, intensively than normal, and that that acts as a kind of greenhouse around the world. And uh, that in turn leads to global warming, and that in turn leads to climate change. So, you know, I, I, you know they're, all, they're all essentially the same terminology. Yeah. Some people don't like to say climate change. I mean, I you know, you don't like to say cancer either, but, you know, you ought to be honest about what's going on around us. The article in New York Times magazine says the world has warmed more than one degree Celsius since the Industrial Revolution and that the Paris Agreement hoped to restrict warming to two degrees. Uh, but some scientists have argued that three degrees of warming is much more realistic. You seem bullish on the future. You talk about progress. I wonder where that comes from. Well, you have to be, you know, uh, you have to look at what's happened since 1988, an enormous amount. There was a major international treaty in 1992. Uh, there were first efforts in the Kyoto Agreement to, you know, figure out what the formula was going to be in a very difficult issue because it's so economically uh, important. Uh, we have an addiction to fossil fuels in every way. And, uh, you know, that just, it pervades our society. So how are we going to move away from fossil fuels, you know, over a period of time? 
you know, the debate that's going on right here in Colorado, you know, over fracking is a perfect example of how difficult it is. You know, fracking is, you know, most certainly uh, part of the transition t- from where we are today to a to a, uh, a, a society that it depends upon renewable uh, energy sources. And fracking has to be done in a, in a responsible way. And that's the debate that's going on now is can we do it in a responsible way still make progress and still move toward uh, a sustainable sustainable energy system. And yet we know that the Trump administration uh, is no fan of the Paris agreements and well, is withdrawing they, the United they, States. Yeah, the Trump administration is just foolish in my opinion. I mean they, you know, calling out a hoax. I mean they are the only we are the only nation in the world whose government, you know, is is uh, is, is dead set against this. He has no idea what the science is all about. I mean, it's just preposterous. But in any case, other other than Trump, the country is making very significant progress. In California, we just over this last weekend had a major national and international conference of state, county, and local governments, the private sector, the non-governmental community, all coming together. And the phrase was, we're still in. You know, the U.S. government may be out of this, but the U.S. government is determining everything. They're very important. Uh, he's not going to be there forever. The climate change issue is going to be around for a long time. So we just got to do the best we can now and, and continue to move forward in finding ways to limit uh, to limit the uh, uh, all of the fossil fuel and, and carbon going up into the atmosphere. I want to be very clear, Senator Worth, that while we're talking about this, you aren't being paid today to back any particular viewpoint. I am happily... Not on anybody's payroll. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with former U.S. Senator from Colorado, Democrat Tim Wirth, who has a long view on the discussion around climate change in this country. Uh, he was featured in a piece in the New York Times magazine this summer called Losing Earth, The Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. And I think one aspect of the story that was really fascinating to me it's the sense that there might have been a moment when industry, uh, the likes of, of Exxon, uh, w- w- could have been on board with the idea that climate change was real and that it ought to be fought. Would you just shed a little bit of light on that? Well, I think there might have been that window. Exxon is an extraordinarily competent uh, company. I mean, I've never dealt with a company that's as good as they are at everything that they do. And you just can't believe that, given that fact, that they had this huge research base. Of course, they knew what was going on. I think they were reading the political winds, and uh, uh, they were saying that there was perhaps no great advantage to them. They were about to make a huge purchase of of natural gas companies so that they became a large natural gas producer. And uh, so they were shifting many of their own their own priorities. And uh, there's a deep conservatism, obviously, in Houston, Texas, and and uh, I think that was a balance. The, the leadership at ExxonMobil uh, was not nearly as up-to-date as their scientists were, and that record now is very clear. There were some very good people there, and uh, they're now moving around. It's now 30 years later. I was at a dinner the other night, and sitting across from me was the, was the ExxonMobil scientist, lead scientist, and one of their lead uh, managers, and they were absolutely saying, we've got to move ahead on the climate issue. We've got to put a price on, on, uh, on carbon. You know, they're, they're moving. And uh, I think what they now need is a major nudge from on top, which obviously we're not going to get from, from Trump. But when the next administration comes in, 
there will certainly be a, an opportunity to be much more aggressive, and I think they're going to want to do that. They're 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 very smart, very sophisticated. They look at their own bottom line, but uh, you know they they have an opportunity to make a real difference. The same is true of the fracking industry. You know, you know I, with uh, with leadership from on top, from the government pushing them. You know, there's no reason why they can't be a much more responsible citizen and you don't have the huge hassles that we now have in Weld County, for example, in eastern Boulder County and so on. I think, though, that President Trump, uh, the people around him, they look at depressed communities in this country, decimated communities in many cases, and they see fossil fuels as a very real and perhaps fast way to lift up parts of the country. Well, you know, that's what they're saying. No, no, but there's no power plant that's buying coal anymore. No new power plants, for coal-fired power plants, are going online. You know, the huge growth is in the renewable area, in solar and wind, and in many cases, uh, the transitions being made by power plants away from coal using natural gas. It's a fraud. I mean, they're saying, you know, I am very sympathetic to the coal industry. They're getting left out, but they're, they have to... Those we don't make uh, we don't make a lot of saddles and carriages anymore. You know we've transitioned as a society away from the use of coal. Trump says you know let's go push coal. Sounds good if you say it fast enough, but the reality is it isn't happening and it won't happen again. Uh, people are very aware of the fact that it's much less expensive now. You know to use alternative fuels and power plants than it is in than it is to use coal. Uh, the the biggest change that the Trump people have occasion, which is the most negative, is their their push to try to lower the automobile standards, which is also absolutely a, a you know a very very um, I would just say dumb thing to do. The critics of those say that very high goals, and we know in Denver, for example, in the Front Range, how important emissions controls are, how important more efficient automobiles are. The brown cloud is much, much smaller than it used to be. You know, that is our, those are emissions from automobiles. And we can continue to be on a path, which we're on, to make automobiles much, much more efficient. And the Trump administration is saying, well, we don't want to do that. Well, why not? I'd like to get back to agree to it and so on anyway. To, to a, a bit of the history of this, the, of climate change. Uh, and, you know, there was a time when another former senator, Al Gore of Tennessee, seemed to be the national voice on the topic. Uh, but today, I'm I'm not sure how often we hear national politicians picking up the climate change uh, mantle. What What's your view on on Al Gore's contribution? Oh, he's made a terrific contribution, and he's really been center of all of this. I think that you know what he's now doing is uh, he speaks around the country, but he also speaks around the world. He's almost a you know he's a very very appealing person for I think people who are now largely convinced and a uh, very appealing person for you know, giving a really great talk to describe climate change. I think what's going to have to happen now is, you know, Gord continues down his pathway, but we're in need of really aggressive governors working on this. We have to find, you know, people in the Senate who are much more outspoken about it and take it on as an issue. Uh, you know, I did that, Gore did that when we were in the Senate, and uh, we just you just got to persist. It's like anything else, and in politics you have to persist even harder and on a on an issue as difficult as climate change, you have to redouble your persistence. It has to go, go, go. You talk and, about governors uh, being involved. I wonder where you see Colorado in well, it's a very, 
It's a really interesting, uh, really interesting uh, case study. You have one candidate who says that he will do anything for the oil and gas industry, another who is much more reasonable about how we deal with the fracking issue. And it's going to be a big issue in the next 50 days of this campaign. You know, Stapleton has one view and Polis has a different view. And uh, I think that uh, I was surprised that, um, honestly, that uh, Stapleton has remained as dug in as he has to a sort of, you know, would appear to be, um, you know, he's really got depending a lot on the oil and gas industry. And, you know, he should be working for a more diverse base and I think a more diverse electorate. He can't win in Colorado without that, I don't think. I think that there are a lot of folks who think the current governor, a Democrat, uh, is not progressive on enough on this issue. How do you no, see I would, I've had long talks with Governor Hickenlooper, and we've battled on things. And, you know, he has his own view of the world. I, 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 I uh, have pushed him on a number of different occasions, and we've argued publicly and privately. You know, if I were sitting where he is, I would be making decisions more aggressively than than. He does, but you know he's in office and I'm not, and uh, so more power to him. He's there. It's a tough job, and uh, you know the next the next governor is going to have to pick up this mantle and and figure out how he's going to work through the energy fracking climate change issue for Colorado. Thank you for this long view, Tim Worth. Interesting to see the reverberations of a debate that happened decades ago today. Well, it's a fascinating issue. It's, yeah. it's the most important issue in our country today, I think, outside of blowing ourselves off the face of the planet. You know, it's the <clears throat> we're doing that. We have a relatively very short period of time to make the transition before we get to that two-degree ceiling already, and then we're moving toward three degrees. It's a very dangerous situation, and it demands strong leadership from public people and private people. And it's great that you guys are doing this program. Thank you very much. Tim Worth, former Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado. He joined us to discuss his role some 30 years ago in the issue of climate change. He was recently featured in a New York Times piece that discussed how politicians, scientists, and big business perhaps failed to get a handle on the phenomenon back then. Post a link at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Football at a school for the deaf is a bit different from other places. For one, it's a lot quieter on the field. The players and coaches use sign language to signal the plays. Mimi Dotremont made a documentary about a deaf college football team that plays at Gallaudet University, a school for the deaf and hard of hearing in Washington, D.C. The film called Anyone Like Me features a player from Arvada. It screens Friday at the DocuWest Film Festival in Denver, Dotremont speaks with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about the challenges the team has overcome. Mimi, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You made this film as part of your graduate school thesis at George Washington University. You were visiting Gallaudet one day and you sort of stumbled onto the story that profiles a football player turned coach at the school. Why were you at Gallaudet that day? So I am... lived in Washington, D.C. for around five years, um, and I lived in an area called H Street that's um, kind of in the greater Capitol Hill area, and it's um, 
located very, very close to Gallaudet. And uh, my first semester of graduate school, I was given for a program in um, new media photojournalism, was given a small assignment to go shoot a story, um, you know, write it, find something interesting, just kind of get your feet wet. And uh, I've always had this interest in disability and um, uh, inclusiveness and diversity. Um, and uh, I really thought that there might be something interesting happening at Gallaudet, but I didn't really know what. So I decided uh, one evening just to kind of wander around campus and see what I could find. And I just heard not much, but what I did hear was this very, very loud bass drum. Um, and I went over to it and it was a football practice. And I had no idea that I never considered that deaf and hard of hearing um, individuals could, you know, play football. It, it was very surprising. And the person who becomes the main subject of the film is Shelby Bean, who grew up in Arvada, Colorado. You met him in an unusual way. I think he approached you on the field and asked if you could take photographs at his wedding. Yeah, yes. Um, so I, it took me a couple of weeks to get permission from the head coach uh, to come and photograph a practice. The team was really struggling that season and had not won any games yet. Um so they were pretty wary of anyone with any kind of journalistic background coming around. But um, when I walked on the field for the first time during a practice, this guy walked over to me and he had kind of long, shaggy hair. And he obviously wasn't a player. He looked like a coach, but he was pretty young. Uh, he walked up to me and said, hey, how's it going? Are you a photographer? Uh, and I said, yes, I, I am. And he's like, oh, cool. Do you know Photoshop? And I was like, I do. And he said, oh, that's great. Um, do you want to photograph my wedding? And I, I was like, what is it? And, and that's because uh, Shelby's face is paralyzed. He has golden heart syndrome. Yeah. And it's also why he's hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he um, overcame a lot growing up and his family really fought for him and supported him. Uh, in Colorado without really a deaf or hard of hearing community. And he um, had all of these surgeries growing up uh, that unfortunately impacted the nerves in his face. So he doesn't, he can't smile. He can't blink. Yeah, he doesn't have external ears. So he has this very, very unique look, but um, he owns it and he uses it as a way to kind of break the ice and introduce himself. Let's talk about what it's like to play football in an environment where players are deaf and hard of hearing. Here's the team's defensive coordinator explaining one part of the game that's a bit different. A coach can't rely on a whistle. There's just so much that you take for granted from having a whistle. Safety's an issue. You want to start everyone at the same time, you blow a whistle. If you want to end something and make everyone stop what they're doing immediately, you blow a whistle. Simple. So everything needs to be visual or tactile. Visual or tactile so the players and coaches can communicate. What did you notice most about watching these guys play football? I noticed how much attention everyone paid, how connected everyone was, because, uh, you know, a football helmet doesn't give you a whole lot of peripheral vision. So they're constantly, their heads are on swivels. They're always paying attention um, they use the bass drum to call out, you know, during practices, um, you know, different drills and, uh, you know, timings. And in the games, they use they the drum is really historic and used to be used um, to kind of, um, you know, 
tell them when the play starts and when the play ends, but now they use it more some, you know, on a bigger scale of kind of very defenses out, offenses out. But uh, they're, they're, they spend so much time during camp and during practices in the beginning of the season, just teaching communication, just teaching these, you know, undergraduate men how to really how to be adults, how to communicate, how to listen, how to be paying attention, um, which is a challenge when you're, you know, 18. Right. Um, Well, let's get back to Shelby Bean. Uh, This is really a story about his life. Mm -hmm. And he says in the film that he didn't want to be part of deaf culture when he first came to Gallaudet. I was very resistant to learning sign language. I was stubborn. I didn't see the point in doing it. I could hear just fine. I could get by just fine. I've done it for so long. And then once I started getting into deaf culture, realized how much I have missed growing up. So he's talking about the tensions that exist within deaf culture. For one, using sign language or ASL and the tension between deaf culture versus hearing culture. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, So I, I come to this project uh, as a hearing individual. I'm very much within hearing culture. Um, I think it's important to, to say that because I can't speak for what it's like to be in deaf and hard of hearing culture. But what I can say is what I've learned and observed and what Shelby's shared of his experience is that um, deaf culture can be very black and white. Um, it's there's an immense amount of deaf pride in the deaf community and they love that they rely on visual communication. But if you're uh, deaf or hard of hearing, you know, youth and um, you don't know that culture, it can be very, very hard to um, get into it and understand it and feel like you're a part of it because 90% of deaf and hard of hearing children are born into hearing families. So just, you know, acclimating to that environment is very, very challenging. Shelby says it best when he told me that it was basically like going to school in a foreign country. It's like, you know, you go to school and you go to college in Italy and everyone just speaks Italian. They don't speak English. Interesting. Well, this is also a love story. Shelby Bean's now married to a a woman he met at Gallaudet who's hard of hearing too. And Mm -hmm. when the documentary was made, they were engaged. And at one point in the film, the two talk about how they first met. So the first time Shelby and I met. She was a mutual friend of my friend Emily, and I always saw Emily after this class. And so my best friend, Emily, and I always would like meet after class. So one day, Emily and I are sitting there chatting as usual. Well, it was midterms, and I haven't slept for like, I don't know how long, 48 hours or something before that class. So I walked out of class and I thought I saw Emily, so I walked up behind her and gave her a hug. And some guy comes and hugs me from behind. So I'm just like, it's a small campus. Like, people do that all the time. So I hug back, and I look, and I'm just like, oh, who is that? And it turned out to be Katie. So that was the first time we officially met, which is me hugging a complete and total stranger. Why did you focus on that relationship as part of this documentary? I thought that their relationship just really showed so much of... of his personality and really was a way for audience would be a good way for audiences to really connect. Um, you know, of both he's really into sports. Um, he's really into finding his place and his identity in the world, but he also is, he's in love. And I think that's something that everybody can connect to is that feeling of, of finding a person that, you know, 
understands who you are. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with filmmaker Mimi Dautremont about her documentary, Anyone Like Me. It profiles a football team at Gallaudet University, a school for the deaf and hard of hearing in Washington, D.C. The film screens Friday at the DocuWest Film Festival in Denver. A Colorado beer brewer is front and center in the latest episode of a popular podcast. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Host Guy Raz was in Colorado over the summer to interview Kim Jordan, co-founder of New Belgium, the Fort Collins craft brewery. Raz and Jordan discussed how she built this at the Boulder Theater for his podcast. The episode's now out. We talked to Roz and Jordan ourselves before their stage event about entrepreneurship in Colorado and what we might all learn from these innovators. Why does Kim Jordan interest you? Oh, wow. For millions of reasons. I mean, Kim is an incredible innovator. She is one of the pioneers of craft brewing. Not too long ago, American beer was was a joke. You know, Europeans would never drink it. I mean, today, you know, the, the beer she produces wins awards and in the Low Countries, you know, in, in in Belgium and in the Netherlands, in Germany, I mean, not just that, but she runs an ethical company and she runs a company with kindness. She is um, Kim is really the sort of epitomizes the kind of entrepreneur that we try and showcase on how I built this. Kim, New Belgium has been around for more than twenty five years and brews just under a million barrels a year. Uh, but I've seen stories that say the company started because you fell in love. Tell us about that. Yeah. My then-husband, Jeff Liebisch, and I had started dating. Jeff is one of those classic um, engineer types. He's really bright and really introverted. And honestly, I think that when we started getting more serious about our relationship, I think he thought, there's someone who can run the front side of the house. (laughs) And, you know, it turns out that our skill sets, I'm a social worker by training, Our skill sets were nicely matched to cover most of the totality of beginning a business and running it. Guy, I wonder if that's a pattern you notice. Is there often the idea person and then the really persuasive person as well who can share that idea and sell that idea? Do you often find that in one person? You know, the the reality is there's no single narrative. I mean, in every single case, the journey of entrepreneurs, whether it's a single person or partners, is different. We have entrepreneurs who are very introverted. We have some who really aren't particularly charismatic. Some of them are the sort of classic, you know, fit the classic tropes, the sort of the risk-taking kamikaze. And there are all kinds of entrepreneurs out there. What's amazing about it and what's really been eye-opening for me is to to discover that, that, you know, entrepreneurs are not these sort of magical, mythical creatures, (laughs) superheroes. You know, they're, they're essentially ordinary people who in many cases just couldn't like deal with the corporate world. You know, they just, they weren't fit for it. I mean, someone like Steve Madden, who started, you know, this massive shoe company, he he would never have have made it in a corporate environment. He would have been fired. He just, he couldn't do it. He couldn't follow the rules. Richard Branson, another one, they kind of had no choice. They had to figure it out on their own. And that's that's what I, I find in virtually all these stories. In the early days of the company, 
Kim Jordan. I understand you used to deliver beer in the family station wagon. Yep. When did you really know, though, that this company is going to make it? We started in the basement of our house. So we knew that if we sold 90 cases a week, which now, you know, strikes me as hilarious, (laughs) that we were going to make it. But then we signed over the mortgages on our home as personal guarantees and moved into our second location. So then you've got this looming feeling of, by then we had kids, this looming feeling of, what if this doesn't work and we lose our home? You know, so it's a thing that you sit with throughout. Yeah, every milestone must bring its own sense of accomplishment and then its own sense of, gosh, I could lose this, or this is costing me a lot. Will it be sustainable? Uh, Some of the most successful entrepreneurs really did get their ideas from the simplest things. Uh, From your podcast, Guy, How I Built This, I'd like to hear from Stacey Brown, who turned some family tumult and chicken salad into a multi-million dollar business. So when the divorce happened and I was in this situation and all of a sudden, what do I have to offer the world? What am I an expert on? What have I perfected over these last years as a stay-at-home mom that people would value? Well, I knew that I was a good cook and I happened to be obsessed with chicken salad. Her business is called Chicken Salad Chick. And, and Kim, Stacy started her company in part because of her divorce. You, meanwhile, had to run a company after a divorce. I'm guessing it's not the first time you had to deal with real-life problems intersecting with business. Is there something you learned or, or were taught that enabled you to overcome setbacks? I have a saying that whenever I'm kind of feeling shaky about stuff, I remind myself of, which is pros don't panic. And it's so simple, right? But there are those moments where what your natural inclination to do is, is to panic. And, you know, it helps to put things in perspective and to understand that you can only control what you can control. And I also think for me personally, I'm pretty tenacious when someone says you can't do that. My first thought is, oh, yeah, watch this. So, you know, and I think I'm not alone in that. I hear that with other entrepreneurs. I mean, there are a lot of things that we do at New Belgium, including 100% employee ownership, where in the early days people said to me, you know, oh, no, you don't give people equity. You you know, you might save a small pot of equity for top management. Hmm. But, you know, you can get another forklift driver any day, which was someone literally said that to me. And... My thought was, well, no, that's what I want to do, so watch this. I've written this down. Pros don't panic. I might put it on my computer screen at my desk. Um, I find it sort of as simple as it is. I find it really helpful in particular moments. Guy, how much does failure play into the story that you want to tell in How I Built This? Oh, it's a huge part of it. I mean, I think if there's one message uh, about the show, it's that failure is your friend, that that you should embrace it and learn from it and then get better. And we've had so many examples of entrepreneurs who failed, who were in the midst of failure. And then when they dusted themselves up off and got up and kind of recovered and were able to kind of step back and look at the situation from the metaphorical balcony – 
they discovered something different. I mean, a great example of this is Airbnb. In 2009, they went to South by Southwest. Only one person took them up on on this uh, opportunity to rent a room and they, you know, they went back to San Francisco crestfallen that it was a total failure, just one person. But that one person also wrote a review and that review was negative. It said, hey, you know, yeah, it was fine staying at the house, but it was weird because at the end I had to hand the homeowner a check and that just felt awkward and transactional. And again, you know, the founders were crestfallen. But after a few days, they thought, wait a minute, what if we make the transactions frictionless? What if we remove the cash transfer from the equation. And that's what led to to their entire system. I mean, it's it's an amazing story of pivoting based on a failure. But it took that moment uh, a couple of days later to rise from the ashes and to not be sort of beleaguered and say, let's integrate that feedback. I, I suppose that's not a muscle everyone has. I disagree. I think that is a muscle everybody has. I think it's like any other muscle that you... You practice and you train and it's hard work. It's not something that comes easily to anybody, to any entrepreneur. Failure is hard. But the differentiating factor is between the people who make a decision to embrace that failure and those who just decide not to. I do think most entrepreneurs have the ability to dust themselves off and, you know, learn from their mistakes but I think there are a lot of people who say, no, I, I just want to go do my job. I don't want to have to think about all of the complexities and the nerve-wracking aspects of being the one in charge. Mm. For me, failure, we've had tons of them, but I I see them more as death by a thousand cuts than one thing that fells you. Another component for that of that for me is competition. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, where do these people get off, you know, challenging our space in the marketplace? And certainly in craft brewing right now, the competition is pretty fierce. But I think competition makes us a lot better because nobody says, gee, everything's going really well. Maybe I'll make a bunch of change. The change happens when you have to say somebody's out there eating our lunch and we need to figure out how to be better at this. Guy, Kim, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Guy Raz is the host of the NPR podcast, How I Built This. His profile of entrepreneur Kim Jordan, co-founder and CEO of New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, is now available. Finally today, the Corner Girls have dubbed their sound Pastel Punk. The rock trio from Denver describe it as punk music that ditches violence and masculinity for unapologetically feminine music, centering on the female perspective that all can enjoy with glitter. The band pulls no punches on its latest single, Boyfriend. They hate their friend's boyfriend, and they say so without hesitation.
That's what pastel punk sounds like from the Corner Girls, a Colorado band that stopped by CPR's open air over the summer. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Matters from CPR News.